0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Turkey Book Talk, episode number 165. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Birol Bashkan. He is a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute and the co-author, along with Ömer Tashpinar, of The Nation or the Ummah, Islamism and Turkish Foreign Policy, published by State University of New York Press. The book particularly looks at Turkey's foreign policy during the era of the Arab Spring when Ankara threw its weight behind protest movements seeking to overthrow established regimes and governments around the Middle East. It describes this era as a discrete period when Islamist ideas guided Turkish foreign policy distinct from the early years of Erdogan's AKP and more recent times when Turkey has tried to patch things up with various old enemies in the region such as the UAE, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Before we get started with the interview remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. You can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a member gets you various extras including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. If you'd rather read these interviews and listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Birol Bashkan. Until 2010, Turkey's ruling AK Party under then Prime Minister Erdogan had warm diplomatic and economic ties with status quo figures in the region including Hosni Mubarak in Egypt and Bashar al-Assad in Syria, among others. Obviously all that would change with the dawn of the Arab Spring but I started by asking Birol Bashkan to set the scene. Why was the AK Party government's foreign policy more prudent and cautious during its initial years in power?
1: So Erdogan and his team, which hailed from Turkish Islamism, had to prove themselves as capable government, especially in terms of economic front. That would strengthen their hands vis-a-vis the military. And that's what has driven uh, Turkish foreign policy towards the Middle East in the first seven, eight years. So economy was the predominant factor in driving Turkish foreign policy. And at that time, Turkey needed markets and capital to set on food sound economic development. And uh, this is precisely what happened. Justice and Development Party really did not care about the type of regime a particular country has, whether that regime is Shia or Sunni, or whether that regime is Republican or monarchy, wanted to strengthen all kinds of ties with the Middle East in the first two years. And again, here the primary concern of the ruling party was economy. And the Middle East was a lucrative market, especially the Gulf countries. By the time Arab Spring came, of course, the military was no longer the player it used to be in Turkish politics. Thanks to the Ergenekon and Balios operations against the military, it totally demilitarized the Turkish military. It marginalized the Kemalist establishment in the military and judiciary. And by the time Arab Spring came, Erdogan had almost a free hand in running Turkish foreign policy. And that is also the time when Davut came to minister for NFS in 2009, if I am not mistaken. So at home, Erdogan became more powerful than he used to be, especially before the 2007 elections. So by the time Arab Spring came, of course, it is also the time when Turkey made constitutional amendments, which enabled to basically decimate the Kemalist establishment in the judiciary, which was the last kind of a stronghold of the Kemalist. So the doors were open for Erdogan and uh, his party to take full control over the, the state. The Kemalist establishment was totally demoralized and decimated, and could not raise any sustained opposition to the ruling party. And that's the time when uh, Arab Spring came.
0: So you're talking there and you talk in the book about this convergence of domestic and international factors that uh, basically gave the Turkish government this window of opportunity. It felt increasingly secure in domestic politics with uh, strong popularity in elections and the secularist opposition posing no real threat and internationally its star had risen a little bit. And then of course the Arab uprisings took place and we saw Turkey gradually shift its foreign policy to become what you call a much more ideological, essentially Islamist stance in favour of these protest movements that Erdogan and the Turkish government thought would bring about similar Islamist flavoured parties to power across the region. Could you just talk about that, you know, why the sharp shift at this point, you know, and what were the results of that? So Turkey developed good
1: relations with almost all countries of the Middle East. I don't remember any exception. So Turkey had excellent relations with Saudi Arabia, with the UAE, with Egypt, with Libya, with Tunisia, with Syria. Then, Arab Spring happened. Of course, it started with Tunisia. Turkey was at first reluctant to take any side in the ongoing protests. actually, the first statement from Minister of Foreign Affairs came almost one month after. Muhammad Bouzizi burned himself. And that was a very cautious statement. It was not a statement which was fully behind, which was fully supportive of the, of the protests in, in Tunisia. And only two weeks after Zeyn al-Abidin stepped down, Turkey made a, a somewhat bold statement with regard to Tunisia. Then, of course, the protests spread to Egypt and Turkey made the strongest and boldest statement in favor of the arab uprisings then in the late january of 2011 then prime minister erdogan directly appealed to husn mubarak then president of egypt to listen to the demands of the people and to, to introduce reforms. And that was a very strong and bold statement coming from the strongest man of Turkey. Then, of course, when Muslim Mubarak stepped down and then the protests spread to Bahrain, to Syria, to Libya, to Yemen, Erdogan, and then the Justice and Development party leaders became vocally supportive of the uprisings. I don't remember. Even in the case of Bahrain, with which Erdogan had excellent relations, Erdogan made supportive statements. So the question is, okay, if you have excellent relations with these old regimes, then why suddenly became supportive of the uprisings that threatened those regimes? Turkey took this moral stand at the risk of undermining all the gains political gains it made in the 2000s so how could we explain this how could we explain this embrace of the of the arab spring the book is not making the claim the following claim every single turn and twist of turkish foreign policy is islamist this is not the claim we made what we claimed is Islamism as an ideology served as a lens through which the ruling party of Turkey interpreted the Arab Spring. It doesn't provide you extremely detailed policy prescriptions, what to do here and there. Islamism is not that kind of a thick ideology. It's a thin ideology. It doesn't tell you what to do in each circumstances. It gives you a lot of space to human interpretation in terms of what is best, what is not good. But Islamism as an ideology provided a lens what we call in the book, an interpretive framework, which means, okay, how we should make sense of the Middle East right now. And this is a question not only Turkey asked, right? I am sure the United States, foreign, foreign policy makers in the United States were asking the same question. The Europeans were asking the same questions. Arab themselves were asking the same question. What's happening right now and what might come afterwards? So in these kind of highly uncertain circumstances ideologies might provide clues might provide meanings or some tools some theories to make sense of the world And that is what Islamism did to the Justice and Development Party. And there, what we do in the book is that we go into the details of Islamism and try to see how Islamism as an ideology interprets the world around. And that is what we try to construct in the book. And then what we saw is that according to that interpretive framework, a particular conclusion could be easily derived from the Arab Spring. And that conclusion is that the Arab Spring is sweeping away all regimes which are basically the puppets of the superpowers and the regimes which keep the Muslim world disunited. And if the Arab Spring is sweeping away these regimes, then what's going to happen next is that we can build a much interconnected, politically, economically culturally interconnected middle east and that is ultimately the ideal of Islamism, which is uh, ittihad islam the unity of islam the unity of muslims which is an ideal set forth islamist in the last in the late 19th century and then has never died out Again, if I have to reiterate the the main arguments of the book, the book is trying to understand Turkey's embrace of the Arab Spring, what led the foreign policymakers in Ankara to fully support the Arab protests from 2011 to 2013. So this is the specific period we looked at. And we are not claiming that Islamism is explaining every turn in Turkish foreign policy from 2000 all the way to 2020. We are not saying that Islamism was not influential either. We are just saying that this is the particular period we focused. And if the readers... Derive from the book the conclusion that Islamism has shaped Turkish foreign policy under just and from beginning to the end that's going to be the wrong conclusion.
0: Now this was obviously the era of Ahmed Davutoglu you mentioned earlier yes. as foreign minister and he's the name perhaps most associated with this policy actually yes. nowadays this era of ideological foreign policy activism uh, Islamism yes. and he started out as then-Prime Minister Erdogan's foreign policy advisor, I believe, and later became Foreign Minister in 2009, serving until 2014. Then, of course, he became Prime Minister until 2016. And since then, obviously, he's gradually fallen into the ranks of the opposition. Just talk about his role, really. How important was Davutoglu as the guiding figure in this activism? You know, as an individual, how much was he shaping Turkey's course on this front? Or was he just given space, essentially, by Erdogan? And also, perhaps, you know, a bit of speculation, I suppose, if Davutoglu wasn't foreign minister at the time, would Turkey have taken the same course?
1: This is another thing that we wanted to do in the book, which is to situate Dawood within the broader Islamist ideology. For that, what we have done is that we have looked through his books and articles that he published in the 1990s, so before Justice and Development Party. Came to power, and what we see a deep continuity between Dawudolu's thinking about the Middle East and the Muslim world, and of course history of the Middle East and history of the Muslim Brotherhood, and then the Islamist thinking that preceded him. So we situated him within the Islamist mainstream or Islamist school of thought, and of course Dawudolu being having a PhD from Bosphorus University, and he's a truly intellectual person. Uh, of course, his argument is much more sophisticated than the people who constructed or helped the Islamist interpretive framework constructed. He's much more academic and much more intellectual than the people. But at the root, at the, the core, ideas of Islamism can very vividly and very clearly seen in his writings. So here, it is not Daudolu which really influenced Justice and Development Party. Of course, he interpreted the Arab Spring in a way that perfectly fitted into that framework. His interpretation of the Arab Spring perfectly followed from or depended on Islamist interpretive framework. But his influence or his impact is not because of himself, but because he was representing a school of thought which was influential in Turkey and which shaped a generation of Islamists. Among whom, Erdogan is one of them, right? It's not just Erdogan, but we are talking about not only intellectuals, but also grassroots religious groups, which pretty much hold the same reading of history. So, Davidoğlu is a, a symbol and he is most visible symbol of that thinking, but it is not because of his personality, it is because what he said resonated within a broader circle of supporters of, of Justice and Development Party. And Erdogan is coming from the same school of thought, of course, Erdogan read the same materials. Erdogan is very well versed in the same, same readings. So what Davutoglu suggested in terms of how we should interpret the Arab Spring must have resonated with Erdogan as well. So I am not putting all the blame, of course, Turkey's foreign policy during the Arab Spring is total failure. No need to say that, right? But I don't think that we should just blame Davutoglu because he was the, the similar. I guess we should blame the whole thinking. It is that particular thinking or a particular ideology, ideological reading of history made this possible. And of course, Daodol was not the only person which was making the, the calls in foreign policy making. Erdogan is behind him. Of course, the president of, of Turkey, Abdullah Abdullah Gül, then was strongly behind him. So it is not just one man is determining everything. It's not just one man is, is making all calls, but he's making it in a context where what he said made sense.
0: Now, over the last couple of years, we've seen a gradual abandonment of this era essentially, a dialing down of tensions and a slow but steady rapprochement with former arch rivals like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt and others. This seems to have been motivated on the Turkish side by economic considerations, a sense of regional isolation, a sense that the dialing up of tensions in previous years, Had sort of reached a limit and couldn't really go any further and was actually damaging Turkey's position in the region quite significantly. Now this rapprochement process there was considerable skepticism in the west I think about this at first but it has actually gained quite a bit of momentum and I just wonder if you could talk about that you know does this current normalization indicate a move beyond Islamism to a post-Islamist phase? I saw an analysis piece up on the Anandolo agency's website the other day saying that the region has gradually returned to a pre-Arab Spring status quo. And the implication of that was that Turkey's relations with the region have also returned to that pre-Arab Spring status quo. Do you think that's a useful way to frame the situation?
1: I mean, I should repeat, I guess, the the, the thing is that Islamism is not what we call thick ideology in the sense of giving you detailed prescriptions in in what you should do, what you should not do. Islamism sets forth an ideal for Muslims to realize ultimately. But how you realize that ultimate ideal is left to your own strategizing. And that ideal is to... Muslim unity basically. How you increase, how you strengthen political, economic, cultural ties among Muslims so that the, the whole Muslim world is going to act like a one one actor. Other than that, Islamism is not providing us a detailed roadmap of how we can achieve this ideal. So this means that rapprochement with Abu Dhabi or with Saudi Arabia or with Egypt, for that matter, or with Israel, was perfectly compatible with that ideology in the 2000s. So uh, the Islamist ideology of Daoud and Daoud was the chief advisor to Erdogan at that time, and Erdogan was himself uh, an Islamist. Abdullah Gül was, an, uh, was coming from that tradition as well. So Islamism did not prevent the, the Justice and Development Party of that period from developing cordial relations with these regimes. So in my opinion, Arab Spring ended, from the Turkish perspective, ended in the summer of 2013 when the military coup overthrew Mohammed Morsi, and that was the wake-up call. That was the end of the dream that Turkish Islamists have been having. After that, it's a period of shock. But at the same time, it is that period during which Erdoğan was trying to survive politically. 2013 is the beginning of the Gezi protest, right? At the end of the same year, he faced his close ally. Until then, the Gulen- Gulenists are waging a judicial coup d'etat through corruption cases against Erdogan, Erdoğan's close circles, right? So it is the period in which Erdogan had every reason to suspect that there is this international and regional coalition which is trying to get rid of it. And of course, Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE, I don't know how much they are involved in that efforts, but uh, we're certainly happy that Erdogan is in uh, is in trouble at home. But that period is over right now. I mean, the world is facing new problems. Turkey is facing new problems. Erdogan is fully consolidated in his position. He's right now confident. I mean, the army seems to be totally under his control. The police seems to be under totally his control. And the region changed, of course. I mean, the the opportunities that the Arab Spring created, which was the opportunity was, okay, it will sweep away all these elites and bring to power Islamists. That is also gone. Muslim Brotherhood is no longer a factor in Middle East politics. It is totally decimated in Egypt. It's totally decimated in the UAE and it's totally decimated in in here and there. So from the UAE perspective or from the Saudi perspective as well, whether Erdogan is an Islamist or not is no longer the question. It could be a question in the heyday of the, the Arab Spring, but right now, what is the why is it important? Neither from Turkey perspective nor from the UAE perspective. This is a question right now, a salient issue right now. So the new opportunity, the new environment, the new context. And of course, the economic crisis Turkey is facing made this rapprochement possible. But I want (laughs) to emphasize again, I guess in this context, Islamism is not going to be against as an ideology, as against these foreign policy steps. You can interpret them as strategic moves or you can interpret them in a way that is not totally against or at odds with, with
0: Islamism. I suppose one conclusion a listener or a reader could draw from what you're saying is that you're arguing basically that when the Turkish government feels no restraints and is in the favourable domestic and international context, this era that you're talking about in the book, more belligerent, more active and challenging regional posture is almost the natural course that things take. You know, this ideological vision is the core belief driving Erdogan and his supporters So we may now be in this era of moderation and normalisation, but it's almost an obligation based on the kind of difficult position that Turkey found itself in. It's not something that Turkey's really embarked on willingly, it was almost just forced into doing. And when the domestic and international context allows it, ideological instincts can resurface. So presumably that might mean that if the situation changes, maybe we'll see a return to the more belligerent trends that you talk about in the book during this era. I mean, do you think that's a useful way to frame it? You know, that the, the era that you look at in the book was almost the most natural expression of the current government's worldview and vision? Okay
1: yes uh, yes that is how i would myself derive from the book and here we should remember that islamism as an ideology i'm not saying it's violent or pro-violent or terroristic or whatever right i'm not suggesting that but it's a it's a radical ideology radical in the sense that it doesn't accept the status quo it doesn't accept the status quo as the ideal (laughs) world And what is the status quo? It is The status quo is the division of the Muslim world into nation-states, different nation-states. So the, we have 52 Muslim countries, and even though Islam strongly prescribes that all Muslims are brothers, and, of course, Islamic world has this institution called the Khalifate, the prophetic period, of course, and then the caliphate period, succeeding the prophet, all show that the Muslims were united politically as well. So as an ideology, Islamism is radical in the sense of not accepting the present international order and definitely is going to favor a change in that international order. But for that idea to drive a state policy like Turkey, perfect conditions must be present. First of all, the Islamists must feel really powerful at home, like happened in the beginning of the Arab Spring and all the way to the 2013, then the international context must also open the possibilities of such daring and such bold uh, foreign policy. If neither of these two conditions are met, then we will not see the full implications of Islamist foreign policy.
0: So how far do you see this present normalisation going? I mean, a bit of speculation, really, but what do, you, what do you think are the limits to it? You know, five years down the line, can you imagine that we'll see a reversal? I mean,
1: uh, if you ask my opinion two months ago, I would be able to say much more clear and definitive things. But right now, what we see with the Russian invasion of Ukraine is, is there are so many things that are uncertain, right? So Erdogan suddenly became part of the Western international community again. We could not foresee this. He was isolated. He was. Not even called by Biden, even though Turkey is a NATO member. But suddenly, the Russian invasion of Ukraine changed all that, saying that maybe we should continue to be a member of NATO, given this very aggressive Russia. And if Russia gets away with this invasion, what's going to happen? What's going to be his next move? So this event, this last one month has shown that we are living in very unpredictable and uncertain times. So what awaits us here in front of us is really hard to predict. I guess the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Turkey became much more geopolitically crucial again. And Erdogan is trying to, has good relations with Ukraine, has good relations with Putin, and gained a new geopolitical prominence. And Gulf states are pursuing policies that are pushing them away from the West and towards you know, more China and, and even to Russia. So it's highly fluid, highly uncertain, highly unforeseeable, unpredictable environment we are living in. It is very difficult to say what's going to happen in the next two years down the road. If this Russian invasion did not happen, I would give a much more definitive answer. <laughs> but right now, it's, it's really difficult, I guess. What I have been thinking about in the last five years might totally be wronged by Putin because he invaded Ukraine.
0: One area that some people have been talking about is Syria and Russia's position in Syria, basically propping up Assad for years. If it really falls into difficulty in Ukraine, economic woes mount. On that front, and is forced somehow to step back in some way from that support for Assad. How that is going to affect the regional situation, whether other powers in the region would step in or could step in to that Russian role, is a is big question mark. And obviously, it would have a knock on effect on Turkey's position. Obviously, it's got big interests in Syria on a number of fronts. That is one particular flashpoint that could shift pretty sharply. Uh, you yeah. can imagine in the next few months.
1: Well, I mean, a few days ago. Uh, Assad visited UAE, so Assad seems to be rehabilitated into Arab politics again. So I don't think that anyone in the world wants to reignite the civil war in Syria. I don't think that anyone has an interest in overthrowing Assad regime again. I don't think that Turkey will single-handedly pursue that objective as well. So the best thing Turkey could do is, I mean, from Turkish perspective, of course, to even coordinate with Assad and then destroy the PYD in Syria, and later on rehabilitate the regions under its control back to Syria. And this way, Turkey can reconcile also with the UAE, with Saudi Arabia, who seem to be very happy with with reincorporating Assad back to Arab politics. So if if Russia withdraws from Syria, I don't think that it's going to change much on the ground in Syria. I mean, the Syrian revolution is over, in my view. And Turkey single-handedly cannot, and I'm sure will not, continue the fight against Assad regime and overthrow the Assad regime. So on on the Syrian front, I don't think that there will be a major escalation.
0: That was Birol Bashkan. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 165. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that just go to Turkey Book Talks Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening.